Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a guest that actually before he became a founder, he worked for some of the biggest uh, companies that you can think of in tech. So um, today he's going to be telling us about how he scaled his company from the ground up, uh, how he's preventing fraud and other things that are super, super interesting that have to do with some of the stuff that we read on the news uh, left and right. But I guess uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Vijay Palasubramanian. Welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me, Alejandro. So originally born and raised in India. So how was how was life being, you know, growing up there? I believe you were born in a small town and then to Bangalore. So walk us through it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I was actually born in Ranchi, Bihar, which is a small town up in, uh, you know, North India. And then, you know, my dad was in the steel industry. So, you know, we'd go to a lot of places where there was brand new steel constructions. But over time, as the steel industry started consolidating, there were more consultancy services and Bangalore started becoming a place for that. And so we moved our family to Bangalore and it was actually one of the best decisions because as you know now, Bangalore is considered the Silicon Valley of India. But at that point in time, it was just a city with great weather great people and a lot of free area. So, you know, we moved to Bangalore uh, and I spent most of my life growing up in Bangalore. Uh, and, you know, with, you know, India is, is, is filled with extremes of temperature. Uh, Bangalore is above the sea level. It's about 2000 feet above the sea level. And so it, it actually has very temperate and wonderful weather. Uh, and so it was a wonderful childhood growing up uh, in that environment uh, where there was a lot of technology that was coming to be. Uh, and understanding, you know, what we, what part we had to play in that technology. And at what point do you start developing the love for computers? Uh, it actually started pretty early, right? I'm, you know, they, they have all of these different generations, right? Like, you know, if you actually look, millennial generation starts in, you know, the 1980s itself, but I was actually born in 1980. And I was in this weird state where I was born, where everything was analog, but things became digital soon after. 
And so when, when I was pretty young, I started seeing computers all around me. But the first place that I got exposed to it was at school, right? So school, we had a computer lab. And so you could take computer science, uh, you know, computer language programming as a uh, as, as, as one of your uh, subjects. And so all of us went through it, but then I fell in love with it, right? I started off with something called Logo, which is this very interesting thing where you can draw pictures and things like that. And then it went on to basic where you could animate things. And so we started off with those basic languages and pretty much, you know, because I come from a, a lower middle class company, uh, my story is different from entrepreneurs here. We, we couldn't afford a computer at home. Uh, instead, you know, what happened is uh, I would spend all my time in uh, the lab uh, at, uh, you know, at my school. And, you know, I would spend hours, the, 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 the computer teacher there would actually keep the lab open on weekends for people who wanted to do special projects. And so we, I'd spend time on the weekends doing computer science and it was the most fun filled time. Uh, and that's when I started learning that for me, the programming or getting the computer to do all of these crazy kinds of things became the most interesting part of dealing with computers. Very cool. Very cool. And, and I believe that, you know, after you got your, your degree, I mean, you got some experience working in, in big companies, and we're going to be talking about that, but you then went on to do the PhD, and I know that the PhD was a, a really big one for you. I mean, it changed the course of everything, and I guess this happened because you wanted to work on harder problems. Is this, is this true? Absolutely, right? So, you know, uh, from that very early age, right, you could... With a computer, you could always think of the art of the possible, right? Dream up something in your head and you would then, you know, be able to create that on a computer by writing a bunch of lines of code. And so that notion that you could always solve any problem, no matter how hard it was, meant that over time, I, I got more and more interested in solving harder and harder problems. And the really interesting thing is the fact that I worked for many years before coming to do my PhD actually worked out really well because I could have become super academic and worked on problems that had no real world significance. But one of the things that I kept looking for is what value does this work that I'm doing in my PhD bring to the table? Got it. So also for the, um, you know, while, while you were doing the PhD and everything, uh, I believe that you went to India and there was a trip that you had that changed the course of everything. What happened? Yeah, so it was really interesting, right? So as you're doing your PhD, you're presenting at all of these conferences. And so, you know, you want to look good, right? So I, I, the, 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 I, I keep going to India every year to travel. So, you know, I went to India, bought a suit, gave it for alterations, and then didn't think much about it. A, a week later, and one day before I was actually flying back to the U.S., I get a call from, uh, you know, uh, my bank uh, saying, hey, there's this particular transaction on your account uh, and we want to verify this transaction. And I'm like, go ahead, tell me what the transaction is. And my bank says, no, no, before we give you that sensitive transaction, we need to verify you and we need to ask you for your social security number. Bear in mind, I'm in India and my bank is here in the US. So they're actually calling me at three o'clock in the morning asking me for my social security number. And all kinds of warning signals are going off because I'm in the security industry. I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to give you my social security number and let me find out who you are. And so we spent 30 minutes in this stupid cat and mouse game trying to find out whether I was VJ and whether they were the bank. And ultimately after 30 minutes and me losing sleep, 
I said, you know what, go ahead and cancel the transaction. It can't be that important. And the next day when I went to get my suit, they had stopped working on the alterations because I'd canceled that transaction. And so I was like, this is crazy. And I so, you know, on the flight back home, I was super frustrated because I was like, we have voice that has existed for over 100 years and we can't identify who's on the other end. That feels like a huge gap. And so when I came back, I started talking to my PhD advisor and we started working on this concept of how do you identify where a call is coming from, who's behind that call, and how do you give guarantees that it's the right person making the right call? Very cool. And obviously, this led to a pin drop. But I think that before we actually go into pin drop, you've worked in, in some amazing companies. I mean, Intel, Siemens, IBM, Google. Why don't we, because I'm sure that many of the lessons learned and, and, and things that you got that you saw so that worked in these big corporations, I'm sure that you are applying them on your entrepreneurial journey. So I think it will be super helpful as well for the people that are listening to learn to, to learn and to hear what were the key takeaways uh, you know, from you being in each one of those. So why don't we start with Intel? Yeah, so Intel was a great experience. I worked on their ERP side of their business, which is you know where Intel does all of their inventory managements for all their chips and their fabrications. So the biggest learning there was how do you do things at scale, right? So even a simple search functionality, and this, bear in mind, was before search became popular even publicly, right? It was just starting to become popular publicly. But within a company, if you had to search across all of Intel's inventory, it wasn't easy. So a lot of my initial projects were building the basic algorithms that now have become commonplace everywhere for Intel within for to solve Intel's problems. So that was one of the biggest learnings, right? How do you do things at scale uh, for even simple problems like search? Got it. So then let's talk about Siemens, key takeaways. Yeah, so Siemens was very interesting. Siemens was a phenomenal culture for uh, uh, programming. So they had some of the best C++ programmers, some of the folks there who were part of, you know, the C++ compiler group that had created the original standards. So Siemens was great from a programming standpoint, but also that was my first foray into telephony. So I was responsible for the network management software. So this is the software that runs all of the EWSD switches that Siemens provides. And these are telephony switches. So if there is a call that needs to be connected from uh, Germany to Italy, Siemens would be making all of the routing through these switches. And I was writing the software that managed all of these switches. And so the biggest learning there was this entire world of telephony and what it took to take a call from any part in the world to another part so that two people, that is the world became closer by that communication medium. Very cool. And what about IBM? At IBM, I, you know, this was during my PhD. So, you know, at IBM, I was working on a lot of the scalability algorithms in voice over IP. So telephony had moved from landlines and cell phones to internet-based telephony. And that's where I started working on my first set of scalability algorithms within IBM to handle internet telephony. And lastly, Google. 
yeah, Google was a great experience. So Google was an experience where I worked on uh, the team that was doing the scalability algorithms for Google's video chat, which is now Google Hangouts. So, and Google does scale like no one else does. So being able to handle that kind of scale and have all of these Google Hangout interactions go through Google servers, that was a super interesting challenge. So now let's say fast forward then and let's go back to where we left it. So you come back after that trip. Now you start to discuss with your colleagues that are in the PhD. What happened? What were the immediate steps that you took and, and right, right, right before? I mean, what was the transition when you got the idea all the way to finally bringing the company to life? Yeah. So, you know, as soon as we got the idea, we realized we had to now figure out how to identify who's on the other end of a voice interaction or a phone call. Right. And when we started looking at the data, and this was based on all of the experiences that I had, right? Like at Siemens, I was doing a lot of the routing between switches to take calls from one place to another. At Google, I was doing a lot of that same stuff on the internet side of things, on internet telephony. So it had given me a lot of background on the gnarliness of the problem. And what I mean by that is when my mom calls from a phone, like a Bharati cell phone, uh, Bharati BT, Airtel cell phone in India, she starts off there. But because she wants to call me, she's using a voice over IP service called Magic Jack. And so the call goes from a cell phone network to a Magic Jack voice over IP service. She's calling my cell phone. So then it comes to uh, the AT&T gateway in New Jersey and then comes to me but the fact is that when I look at the data of that call, all I see is the AT&T gateway. If I didn't know it was my mom making that call, I have no clue that it actually originated so many, so many thousands of miles away in India and came here. And so that became the challenge. How do you identify where this call is coming from and who this call belongs to? And what we quickly realized as part of my PhD was the only thing that comes reliably from the source to the destination is the person's voice or is the audio of a call. And so we started building my entire PhD thesis around the fact that what does the audio reveal to you? So when a call comes from India, what does the audio of a call coming from India reveal to you? When a call comes from uh, Nigeria, what does the audio reveal to you? And as we started finding these features, we started realizing we could piece together where a call came from anywhere in the world just by the acoustic characteristics in that call. Got it. So then, so then what was the, um, so as you were like really incubating this idea and, and figuring all these things out, how did you also started putting together all the different members for the founding team of the company? Yeah, so it, it was interesting, right? So, uh, you know, once once I got the idea and I started publishing papers and things like that, uh, a lot of press media started covering these articles. Uh, I had, uh, you know, NPR, Popular Science, they all covered, you know, the, the, the PhD work that I was doing. And then what really became interesting is we, I then started getting calls from several banks, several you know, of the top 10 banks in the U.S. started calling me saying, hey, you know what, you're trying to solve this problem from the other side. If you as a consumer get a call from a bank, how do you know it's the bank? But we have the same problem. For example, when you, Alejandro, call the bank, how do they know it's Alejandro? And so they wanted to start licensing my technology to use it in their own call centers, in their own voice uh, systems. And as soon as they said that, that they wanted to license the technology, I was like, wait, wait, 
hold on a minute. I think there is the ability to form a company. And so I then started working with my advisor to start finding people who from Georgia Tech had been successful entrepreneurs in their own right. And that's when I met, you know, one of our early co-founders, a gentleman by the name Paul Judge, who had done a lot of work in the email security space uh, and in the web security space. Uh, And then, you know, I asked him to come join us for this voice security. And he was one of my earliest co-founders. And, you know, as this initial team with me, Mushtaq and Paul, we started building the rest of the management team. Got it. So then at what point did you make the decision, I am going to go after this business? Because obviously this was your first uh, rodeo, right? I mean, you you had the experience with working with really large companies. And obviously with that comes a comfortable paycheck and and just being able to yeah. turn the lights off and going back to to your house you know without you know your your wheels spinning spinning you know which is really what happens for founders you know where where you can't turn it off it's just it continues right so i guess uh, in this case at what point do you make that decision oh so it, it was it was really interesting right so you know i had offers from all the big companies right google vmware microsoft you know i had several offers and it was it was actually an interesting decision. But the funny thing is, if you're an entrepreneur, you know this, right? There's something deep down in you. And, you know, I come from India where, you know, we tend to be a little more conservative and a little more risk averse. And the funny thing is, as soon as I realized this is what I wanted to do, none of those other offers mattered. And I almost immediately started saying, okay, how do I, in fact, I had came to my advisor and I told him I'm dropping out of the PhD program to go pursue this. And, you know, the only reason I actually got my PhD was because my advisor was phenomenal. He actually wrote a lot of my PhD theses, uh, you know, helping me out. And I got my PhD along the way, but I'd already started, uh, you know, writing grants to get money into the company so that I could hire my first set of engineers and things like that. But where it really became real was... Uh, we one of the calls that I got was from a top four bank in the U.S. And so they came and asked me to come to their uh, data centers to come, you know, run our algorithms to go solve the problem. And we had a month to go find fraud at this data center. And, you know, for the first, I think, 12 days, you know, in fact, most of the algorithms broke because they had given us 1.2 million calls and we had no way to scale to that with Uh, you know, the algorithms that we had. So we were writing code along the way and I was sleeping in that data center. In fact, the security guards were telling me, hey, we don't need a job because you're here before we come and you're here after we leave, right? And so we kept working on it. And then on day 12 was when I first heard a Nigerian fraudster on a call saying he was John Smith. And then that same Nigerian fraudster was on another call that the system had pulled up but accessing a completely different account. And then on a third call, he was accessing a woman's account and changing his voice to sound like a woman, right? Using a falsetto. And that's when I knew we had something real. That's when it completely became real and I knew this was going to be big. Wow. So then, so then... Let's talk about, because I know that you guys also then started going to competitions and, and things like that to get some money. So yeah. so you knew that this was serious. You knew that you really wanna wanted to dedicate yourself to this. So then after you got the decision and then you started pulling in members of the team, you know, walk us through some of those early days. 
Yeah. So what happened is when we started, right, like the really interesting thing is the way I got my initial funding is because I was a PhD researcher, I actually wrote a National Science Foundation Small Business Innovation Research Grant. It's one of the best things that are out there. Not many people use it, but it's it's a phenomenal tool to get money in. And through the life of Pindrop, it's, you know, they've, they've provided close to a million dollars with no equity. What they want to do is for you to create jobs in your local area, right? And so, you know, it was it was a great initial funding. And that, what that allowed us to do is go from these proof of concepts to the first version of the product. And then we sold the first version of the product, right? And I still remember, right, we got the first order. You know, we started the company back in 2011. We got the first order at 11.59.41 p.m., in 2012, in late 2012. And so once we got the first order, immediately what we started doing is we started putting together our Series A. Uh, and during, you know, during the seed round, that was about six months back, we'd actually gotten a whole group of people, including Maynard Webb, who is the uh, ex-COO of eBay. He decided to, you know, he loved the idea. He put money in during the seed round. But Andreessen Horowitz also put money during the seed round. And then during the Series A, they decided to take the entire Series A themselves, right? And so, but once, that's when we started really starting to build the team, right? So between the Seed and the Series A time, we started building the team. And this is where Paul was super influential in the early days because Paul had done this multiple times. He'd built email security and web security companies. Our first VP of engineering and our first VP of marketing were people that he'd worked with before. And, you know, I spent time with them telling them, hey, you've done email and web security, but voice is where the world is going to. And therefore, let's go to voice security. And here's the kicker, right? This is the hardest thing that we did, right? That even though we got our Series A, our Series A we got after 60-odd meetings with a whole bunch of financial VCs after seven months. And the reason it took us so long is because every time I went to a VC during that period in time, even though we had these deals, everyone had a TechCrunch article that said the phone call is dead. And I would have to keep explaining to them that so what the phone call is dead, the way we communicate is through voice. So voice isn't going to die. It's going to come and resurge itself in a different format. At that point, I didn't know how it was going to come back. And now we have Alexas and Google Homes and things like that. They all came only in 2014. But back in 2012, 2013, voice was considered dead. And it was considered, why are you spending so much time on an area that has no future? Yeah. And so... That was, you know, the, the, the large part of the early years were con was convincing both, you know, people that we hired into Pindrop, investors, customers, that voice is the way of the future and there is a significant market here. But at that point in time, it was a hard ask. I mean, a hard ask of, you say, seven months or whatever that was, but you guys ended up getting Andreessen Horowitz at a, at a seat round, which is unbelievable. So what, what do you think clicked? For, for Andreessen Horowitz to say, hey, we're, we're, we're jumping on this? You know, uh, it's, I think, I, I think uh, there's, a, there's a quote by one of our board members from Andreessen Horowitz, uh, uh, Martin Casado, who says, uh, you know, he was an engineer, right? So he said, learnings as an engineer is uh, bad ideas in engineering one time are bad ideas always. And then his learning as an investor is that great uh, markets and great ideas were once really 
bad ideas in investing, right? And so I think, you know, it's it's the the, the reason it clicked is uh, Andreessen Horowitz is a, is is a VC firm that's always looking for the counterintuitive idea. And I remember, you know, in my first pitch uh, with uh, the Andreessen Horowitz team, Mark Andreessen asked me the question, "Hey, I understand all of these things that you're doing in the telephony space and stuff like that, but that's not interesting to me. Why do you think Pindrop is going to be a meaningful company 20 years from now?" And it's there when I started formulating the initial ideas that, "Hey, so what if the phone call goes away and let's say all of, you know, the old telephony as we know it goes away, but the way we communicate is still to vo- through voice." And that is much faster than any way in which you can type. And therefore, if interfaces got better, we should get there. And it's in that moment that we clicked, right? Him pushing me to say, what does this company look like 20 years from now? Because I don't care about what you do right now. I care about the longevity and how big is this bet. Wow. That got us thinking. And, uh, you know, it was one of the hardest questions I had to answer then but it's actually one of the most meaningful questions for the company. And and I guess the, um, you know, for the people that are listening, so what, how do you guys make money? So how we make money is we make money per call. So what happens is if you're a large bank or uh, insurance or a retailer or a telco or a government organization, you get millions of calls coming into your organization, you know, where you have to provide service or sales. And what we do is on all of those calls, we're able to tell you, yes, this is Alejandro calling because we know it's his voice. We know it's his device. We know it's his behavior. So we're providing a true multi-factor authentication. So he doesn't have to remember passwords, pins, questions, or any of those things. And on the other side, if we've never seen you, Alejandro, we provide the ability to detect when that call is risky. So, hey, you know what? I don't know who this is, but... It's saying this phone number is coming from New York, but the audio characteristics are telling me it's a Skype phone calling from Nigeria. So something is wrong with this call. And so those are the two ways that we're able to protect these things. And because we do it on every single call, we charge by the transaction. Got it. Got it. Got it. So then so then talking about going back to the uh, to the fundraising and to Andreessen Horowitz, which is super impressive to to get, you know, a top tier like that on a on a seat level, how much capital have you guys raised to date? So we've actually raised quite a bit of capital. We've raised about $213 million in funding. Wow. And what would you say so much money? Uh, so, you know, uh, call center infrastructure is hard, right? Trying to change the voice telephony world and make sure you're able to offer services are really hard. And, you know, the really interesting thing with us is even though we're a startup, if you look at our client list. We have eight of the top 10 banks, five of the top seven insurances, some of the biggest retailers, telcos, and brokerages. And as a stat, 70% of our customers are in the Fortune 500. So we don't have small customers. And dealing with these large customers requires the right kind of customer support, requires the right kind of sales engine. And so over time, you know, initially it was to build out the voice security solution that is identifying when a call is risky. But over time, we've realized that we can also start identifying you, the customer, based on your voice, device, and behavior. And so 
The subsequent rounds were to enhance our product to also provide voice authentication. And then the final round was we're moving now outside the call center to the IoT world. So, you know, it's the same question, right? Is this Alejandro calling his bank to do a wire transfer? Is this Alejandro telling his Alexa to close the burglar alarm? Is it really Alejandro or is it the burglar? How do I know? And so now we're playing a lot in the IoT space where if you want to... you know, open and close your door, or if you want to do stock trades on your Alexa, or if you want to go open your car door and get into it and change the cruise control, or if you want to go through uh, airport security or open your hotel door or turn on your Netflix preferences, you're starting to use more and more voice in these interfaces. How do you know it's the right person either for identity or for personalization? We're playing in those spaces as well. And the last round was an investment for those spaces. Got it. And obviously, you have amazing investors. Andreessen, as we were talking about, Google Ventures, Redpoint, Felicis, Sigma, IVP, uh, and the list goes on and on. So, and you've done, you know, just like you were mentioning, you just did your Series D. So, you've done a seed, Series A, Series B, Series C, and Series D financing yep. round. So, if I was to ask you, you know, maybe we can go like round by round and you can tell me what. What did you learn out of that financing stage? Why don't we do that? What did you learn out of the seed round stage? Yeah. So, you know, the seed round was one of the hardest. And, you know, um, especially when you have an idea that is creating a new market, the biggest thing that I learned is persistence, right? The fact is that most VCs and most investors are doing pattern matching, And if they haven't seen some shape or form of a similar idea, so, you know, if you're building a storage company, everyone knows people need storage. And therefore, you know, your idea will probably get funded if you have the right kind of uh, makeup. But if you're creating a voice security and authentication market and that market didn't exist, there's no way to say which VC is going to actually say that's a good idea. So it's a lot about the numbers initially. And so we just went and pitched everyone who'd listened. And that was my biggest learning of the seed round. What about the Series A? The biggest uh, learning of the Series A was, you know, the kind of VC you want in your table. So between the seed and the Series A, Andreessen, through its EBC program, already introduced us to several big customers. And so we started realizing at our Series A stage that everyone has money, But what you want is true value. And everyone says they have true value, but Andreessen had like 70-odd people who were helping out businesses to scale and grow. And so the biggest learning there was what's the kind of money you want to get into your round. And the Series B? The Series B was a growth stage, right? And so it was our first growth stage round. And so at that point in time, we were looking to move from one product to another. And so we wanted people who had that experience of moving, you know, of taking companies through growth, right? Either through products or through scale. And IVP has done that several times with some of the biggest growth companies. So if you look at their portfolio, they have some of the biggest growth companies like Kayak and, uh, you know, Uber and TransferWise and folks like that. And so, you know, it was important for us to get that kind of VC at that point in time. And the Series C? The Series C was Google Capital, not Google Ventures. Google Ventures also participated, but Capital G was the one that led that round. And that was purely strategic, right? Like after we finished our Series B, we realized we don't want any more 
financial VCs, right? We want more people who can provide strategic value. And that's where Google came in to provide that strategic value because they do a lot in the voice world and we do a lot in the voice world and that match seemed like a perfect match. So what does a strategic value look like? What the strategic value looks like, especially with Google, is very, very interesting. It's twofold, right? Like Because Google is one of the biggest engineering cultures, they help us address a lot of engineering problems. Hey, we're moving to the cloud in the voice world and we need streaming uh, data processing. They're able to get the best experts in this area to come help us out. At the same time, hey, you know what? We're doing this thing in the call center world and in the homes. So Google is able to make introductions to teams that are working. Like Google is one of the biggest call centers because they have to deal with a lot of this data, right? And they actually now have what's known as contact center AI, which is their own contact center uh, offering because of all of their experience. And so working with those teams, understanding what are the big challenges was something that was super helpful for us and we did that both in the contact center world, but also in the home automation with their Google Home products. We got to work with them on a lot of the things that moved into our IoT offerings. Very cool. And lastly, the Series D. Yeah. So the Series D was more about international expansion. So we were doing really, really well in the U.S. And it was time for us to expand to other areas. And so, you know, one of the first areas for us to expand was EMEA. And so our Series D was with Vitruvian, which is one of the largest uh, PE firms in, uh, in EMEA. And so they uh, came and joined the portfolio in order to help us expand into EMEA. And we also had other smaller investors like the government arm of Singapore, EDBI, participating in this round to be able to take us to APAC and places like that. So it was fundamentally the goal was international expansion. Super cool. And that's how you break down 200 over 200 million. So, I mean, it's a really, really impressive. So, so thank you. Thank you for that. So I guess the um, Vijay, if I, if I had to ask you, you know, because I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are, that are wondering as well, you know, perhaps that are listening, where do you think the world of voice as a whole is, is going to? So, you know, so uh, I think voice has an incredible future and we're actually at the front end of a big, uh, you know, paradigm shift. And if you actually look back, there have been two such shifts, right? So when, you know, we were all analog and the first online presences came, organizations had to create websites to actually participate in this online economy. And companies that didn't do that went away, right? Like Blockbuster, which didn't make the transition from brick and mortar to online, struggled. And then when in 2007, when the iPhone came out, you had another revolution, right? It was the mobile app revolution. And then that gave way to the mobile economy. And the funny thing is there were companies like Microsoft. And I remember a Steve Ballmer quote where he said, you know what? I don't think there are going to be very many you know, mobile devices that do computing, right? Like there's not going to be a great way that we interact with our customers. And that changed. And every organization now needs a mobile presence. We're in a similar state right now with the Alexas and the Google Homes and the connected cars that are all moving to this voice interface. And the reason they're moving to it is, is actually very interesting. It's twofold, right? One, a voice interface requires very little. You just need a microphone, which is lesser than half a millimeter. It's at the end of your mobile phone. You see there are three or four dots. That's a microphone array. And that's why when I went to CES, you'd see devices like smart rings as small as a ring and it all it has is a small little microphone that allows you to give you the entire power of voice 
And so more and more devices are moving to voice. And then the second thing is voice actually allows you to convey things at the speed of thought. So if you actually think of a basic thing that you want to do in your online world, like doing a wire transfer, you have to go to first log into your account, then you have to go to accounts, then you have to pick account overview, pick the account that you want, then say, hey, I want to transfer it to this other account. And then you have to say one time, and then you have to say immediately, and you have to put the amount in. You have to go through all of that steps to do a wire transfer. And it's a very sequential way of doing things. As humans, we're random. We're not sequentially wired. So I would just go up to my Alexa and say, hey, why don't you wire $10,000 from my bank account to my Bank of America account? And that transaction, because I've spoken, it's my voice, so I don't need to log in. And then because I've said all of those things, I know exactly where to where to move money. And I've done that in less than a less than two seconds, whereas in the other case, I'd have to do all of that over a period of a minute. And so we're moving to a world where more and more things are going to be voice-based. And so that's going to give rise to what a lot of people are calling the conversational economy. And you as an organization have to decide whether you want to be like the blockbusters uh, of the world and don't make that transition or whether you're going to start participating in this conversational economy and interacting with your customers through voice or not. Wow. This is uh, incredible. Incredible, Vijay. So, so I guess uh, how big is the business today? How big is Pindrop? So we don't, we're a private company, so we don't give, uh, you know, uh, yeah, no, numbers. What, about, what about employees? How many employees? Yeah, we're about 240 employees right now. It started with just two people in a, you know, in a small little broom closet. And now we're about 240 people. Wow. And I guess uh, looking back for you, BJ, what, what would you say has been the, um, probably the toughest moment as an entrepreneur where maybe you learned the most? I think there were two tough moments. One was, you know, when no one wanted to invest in Pindrop because we were playing in a, in, in, in phone calls, right? It, it required a lot of uh, patience to say, hey, no, this is, this is going to be a big market because, you know, uh, you can't predict the future, but you're telling people to look at an idea that you think is going to happen, right? And so that was one hard. But the other one was early on because we got a lot of these big customers what happened is we got, you know, like we had eight of the top 10 banks. We actually had nine of the top 10 banks. And early on, we worked with one of the largest banks. But because they were so early, we couldn't scale our software to their call volume. And everything came crashing down. And they actually completely decided to move another way. That was really, really hard, right? Like when you, the first time you lose a really big customer, uh, and, you know, at that point in time, we were doing about, you know, uh, 10 million in revenue, and they were 30% of that revenue number. So it turns out, it turned out to be a really, really scary thing. But that's when you find very gritty teams that say, okay, let's learn from that. Let's make sure we give the customers the right expectations and then make sure that we're providing software that can scale and, and provide the right kind of uh, service. Really cool. And I guess, uh, you know, one of the questions that I always ask the founders that come on the show uh, is that, you know, knowing what you know now, uh, I guess if, if you had the opportunity to have a chat with, with your younger self, with that VJ that was still, you know, doing the PhD and maybe thinking about launching a business, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to, to that younger BJ before launching the business and why? 
Yeah, so, you know, uh, before launching the business, let me think about that. Yeah, so the one thing that I would, uh, you know, the one piece of advice that I would give uh, uh, that VJ is the fact that when you're hiring a team, oftentimes, right, figuring out who's the right hire and making that, you know, being very deliberate about the right hire is super important because, you know, one of one of the things that an early uh, mentor told me is when you're faced with a problem, there are only three ways you can actually solve the problem. You either out-hire your way out of the problem, you'll out-innovate your way out of the problem, or you'll out-execute your way out of the problem. And fundamentally being able to know which situation demands which, that's probably the biggest advice I'd go back and tell, uh, you know, tell uh, the older VJ. Very powerful. And then, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of um, engineers that are going to go into into being an entrepreneur and more on the business side or, you know, some people that are right now doing their PhD or doing research or working at labs, let's say in universities. What piece of advice do you have for them for that transition from going really up from the technical side to the business side? Oh, yeah, that's that's a great question, right? I think, you know, when you're an engineer, uh, engineering purity and technical purity is everything, right? You want to b- build the most scalable algorithms, the best code, you know, stuff that's designed beautifully. But none of that matters if you don't have customers. And if you actually try to prematurely scale or build these systems before you have customers, you'll just keep designing the system till infinity and never... Ec- actually step out of your office. And so one of the big things for me to learn early on was the fact that I couldn't just keep coding and assume people would come to me. I had to go talk to customers, keep talking to them, and even potentially, you know, sending software to them that wasn't very good, but telling them that it was early software and learning from that and iterating from that. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing that an engineer has to get over, that fear that 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 someone's going to tell you your software is ugly. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So for the folks that are listening, Vijay, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, they can reach out by saying hi at vijay at pindrop.com or hitting me up on Twitter. I'm VJ underscore voice. Either of those ways, uh, absolutely happy to hear from you. Amazing. Well, Vijay, thank you so, so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you so much for having me, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.